American history has a long list of stuntmen and daredevils who have captured the nation's attention with their daring dues. People like to see a breathtaking feat. In 1829, a man named Sam Patch, the Jersey Leaper, erected a platform a 100 feet above Niagara Falls, then leaped off the platform into the churning waters below and lived to tell about it. In the 1920s, there was a flagpole sitter. Al Shipwreck Kelly was his name. He stayed aloft the top of a flagpole for 49 days. Imagine seven weeks on top of the ball of a flagpole. In more recent times, Evil Knievel broke every bone in his body, jumping motorcycles over cars and trucks and fountains, even tried the Snake River Canyon. You see, people like to see a stunt. And that's why God sent a stunt man to the nation Judah. I like to call Ezekiel the stunt man of the Bible. He was a prophet, but he delivered his prophecies, many of them, in some wild and bizarre and weird ways. Ezekiel lived with the exiled Jews in Babylon, and he acted out these skits to teach them different spiritual lessons. In chapter 12, God has Ezekiel at it again. Once more, he gives his neighbors there in Babylon something to talk about. Each morning, he packs his belongings and he sets them outside. Then at twilight, he loads them on his shoulders and he walks away. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate to move. One decade per move is about enough for me. All the sorting, the boxing, the packing, what a hassle. And yet Ezekiel was called by God to move in and out of his house every day. And rather than leave home through the front door, it gets worse. God tells Ezekiel to dig a hole in the wall of his house. In other words, he's to bear the indignity of being forced to escape from his own house. You could say Ezekiel's house was literally a hole in the wall. In verses 10 and 11, God explains his purpose for these antics. Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. Say, I am assigned to you as I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. You see, Ezekiel's stunt was simulating the captivity that was to befall the Jews in Jerusalem. The walls would be breached and they would be taken away and forced to move to Babylon. In the last half of chapter 12, the stuntman performs another skit. He's told that whenever he eats, he's to act like he's been starving for weeks and has finally found food. In other words, he's to grab the bread with his hands, stuff it in his mouth, guzzle down his glass of water. He looks just like the pastors when they go to lunch at Sonny's Barbecue, <laughs> scarfing up the food. Ezekiel is mimicking the desperate conditions that exist in a city under siege. The people are hungry. They're starving for food. And these same conditions will be experienced by the city of Jerusalem when the Babylonians invade. In chapter 12, God uses a prophet to counter a proverb. You see, the Jews have this little jingle that they're saying amongst themselves. Verse 22, the days are prolonged and every vision fails. In other words, don't panic. Nothing is imminent. The prophets are wrong. Judgment isn't coming. The days are prolonged. And even if they're right in the judgments they're warning about, those judgments are still in the distant future. But you see, God has his own jingle. Verse 23, no, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. And here is the battle of jingles. Whose jingle is really going to jangle? The Jews say judgment is future. God says judgment is just around the corner. God's message through Ezekiel is summed up in verse 25. He says, I am the Lord. I speak and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed, for in your days, O rebellious house, 
I will say the word and perform it. Notice, in your days. Whose jingle is right? God's is. The days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. It reminds me of today's skeptics who scoff at the biblical signs that point to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Folks who believe it at all, push it off into the distant future. But if you carefully study the biblical prophecies in light of current events, you will conclude that Jesus is coming sooner rather than later. Today, our jingle ought to be Ezekiel's. The days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. There's another jingle I'm sure you've heard before. What you see is what you get. But don't believe it. What you see is not always what you get. Recently, a consumer advocacy group examined some food products to see how well their names matched their contents. It turns out a jar of Prego spaghetti sauce with mushrooms contained just one half of a single mushroom. Patio beef or pateo, I guess, beef and bean burritos, beef and bean burritos total just seven beans per burrito. The total vegetable content of a banquet vegetable pie equals ten peas, one-twentieth of a carrot, and one-nineteenth of a potato. How's that for your vegetable pie? And catch this, three Pillsbury Hungry Jack buttermilk pancakes comprise less than a teaspoon of actual buttermilk. The point is, buyer beware. Labels can be misleading, which introduces us to the problem here in chapter 13. For Judah is entertaining false and foolish prophets, and their false advertising is summed up in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Boy, how that could be said about a lot of ministries today. They're saying, thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Verse 3 sums up these prophets again. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. According to verse 10, the prophets preach peace when there is no peace. Ezekiel compares them to a builder who erects a wall with untempered plaster. Therefore, it cracks and it fails to keep out the flooding rains. The message of the false prophet is futile and fatal. It brings disaster on those who take it to heart. The false prophet is proof of the old adage, tell a lie long enough and you will begin to believe it is truth. You see, often the false prophet is self-deceived. He has concocted in his own mind a belief system that justifies his sin and his advocacy of it convinces his own mind that he's right. As it was said of the old miners who were working way up in the gold mine, so desperate for gold, he's married the vein. In other words, it doesn't really matter whether there's gold there or not. He's just married that vein. He's going to work it till he dies. He's no longer thinking objectively. He's bought into an assumption that he refuses to reconsider. It reminds me of actor Douglas Fairbanks. And his last words just before he died, you know what they were? His last words on his deathbed. I've never felt better. Trust in your feelings. Trust in your own perspective, in your own logic, and you'll be deceived. We need to examine everything that we hear in light of God's Word. If a belief is not grounded in the clear interpretation of Scripture, it needs to be rejected. The end of chapter 13 tells us that the false prophets had sewed magic charms on their sleeves. This was an occult practice prevalent at the time. In other words, though, they had employed demonic power to enforce their position and to enlarge their constituency. In other words, they had sold their soul to the devil. Last week, believe it or not, a University of Washington student sold his soul on the Internet. At auction on eBay, 
He sold his soul for $400, which shows how little he valued his own soul. Of course, the sale was just in jest, but the false prophets of Judah had literally sold their soul to the devil. And they were employing demonic means to hunt for souls. Verse 20 says, they hunted down souls like birds. Another big item in recent news was the arrest of a double agent. An FBI agent who had been working for the United States while spying for the Russians. And it reminds me of another such episode I read about several years ago where an agent had been seduced by a Russian woman. And at his trial, a tape recording was played. And you can hear the agent say to her, You have stolen my heart. And she says in reply, I know, that's my job. Well, that's also the job of the false prophet. He steals hearts from God. He's robbing people of their eternal security, of their relationship with God. He's stealing hearts. Beware of the false prophet. In chapter 14, Ezekiel attends an elders meeting. The Jewish elders come to Ezekiel with a whole agenda of issues that they want to inquire of God. They want to solicit God's help. There is only one issue on God's agenda, and that is the nation's idolatry and their repentance. Notice God's analysis in verse 3. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity, should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? In other words, God is not going to help them with their many issues until they repent of the one issue on His agenda, and that is the unfaithfulness in their hearts. Guys, I want you to know that God wants to help you in all kinds of ways. You can't imagine the different ways He wants to minister and work in your life. He wants to bless your marriage. He wants to teach you how to handle your kids. He wants to give you victory over your doubts and fears and bring peace in the midst of stressful situations. God has innumerable blessings that He wants to pour out into our lives. But before He is willing to do anything for us, He demands first our heart. He wants our unrivaled allegiance. Never forget, bowing to God always precedes blessing from God. These elders had a wish list, things they wanted to inquire of God and solicit His help. But He said, I'm not going to answer any of them until I first have their hearts. In chapter 14, verse 13, the Lord says of Judah, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Notice God isn't punishing the nation for a single slip up, for a second or two in sin. The Jews are guilty of a long season of rebellion. For centuries now, they have been living, as God here says, a persistent unfaithfulness. Hey, God's patience has its limits. Chapter 14 conveys a scary truth. You can push God to a point where judgment is a foregone conclusion, where the verdict is irreversible. You see, God mentions in the latter part of the chapter three great intercessors of the Old Testament, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Noah, remember, saved humanity from the flood. Daniel saved his colleagues from the king's fury. And Job saved his counselors from their own foolishness. But all three men praying together couldn't save Judah from God's judgment. You see, the rebellious Jews had gone past the point of no return and their fate was now sealed. In the Bible and in Jewish tradition, the vine is always a symbol for the nation Israel. Psalm 80, verse 8, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, verse 21, Hosea 10, verse 1, they're all examples. In the second temple, in fact, Josephus tells us that a vine was engraved on the doors of the temple. Israel was God's vine. But in verse 
2 of chapter 15, the Lord asks Ezekiel the question, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? That's a good question. You see, the vine wasn't used for lumber since it was too twisted and too gnarled for carving or construction. It was too weak to use as a peg or a pole, and it was too combustible to use as firewood. It burned too quickly. The vine's single, solitary purpose was for bearing fruit. And like the vine, Judah's single purpose was to produce spiritual fruit, pleasing to God. It was too twisted, too weak, too combustible to be esteemed among the nations. But its love and its devotion and its worship would have made it great in God's eyes. You too might not be good for much. You're too twisted, too weak, too combustible. You burn out too quickly. But you know what? You can be great for God if you give Him your heart. If you abide in Him and produce spiritual fruit. That's what He's looking for in the first place. That's what He wants from a vine. As I said this morning, my dad was into country music. And his favorite artist was Hank Williams. And if I were to title Ezekiel chapter 16, I would borrow Hank's hit, Your Cheating Heart. That's what we find here. That's what this chapter is about. Judah's cheating heart. The first 14 verses describe God's grace toward the Jews. When he found Israel, she was like a rejected infant who had been thrown away and left for dead. But by the sheer force of his own will, God kept the nation alive. He cleaned her up. He married her. Then he showered her with righteousness and riches and royalty. And yet something went wrong. The nation's love grew cold. Her heart began to wander. She followed after the Egyptian gods and then later the Assyrian gods and then still later the Chaldean or Babylonian gods. But the one true God who loved her, she refused to remain faithful to. Jehovah's wife became a spiritual slut, a harlot, an adulteress. Verse 25 sums up her situation You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. Judah made no attempt to be faithful to God. Hey, there's another Hank Williams song that God could have sung to his people. And I thought that while we had the CD, we would just hear it, you know. Now, has God been asking you that question lately? Why don't you love Him like you used to? Have you allowed someone, have you allowed something, an idol, to steal your affections, to draw your heart away from God? Has Jesus become second fiddle in your life? There's another line in that same song. Don't worry, we're not going to play it. But it says, somebody changed. So let me give you a clue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? In other words, if your relationship with Jesus is not what it used to be, if it lacks that fire and passion, understand it's not God who changed. It's you that changed. Is there an item, you might call it an idol, in your life that has become more important to you than God? You need to get rid of it. You need to repent of it. You need to give God the total, 100% unrivaled love and devotion of your heart. Verse 34 says that Judah was worse than a harlot. 
A prostitute performs for money, but Judah refused payment. Like an adulterous wife, she did it not out of a need to be paid, but out of sheer rebellion. She traded her loyalty to God for momentary thrills. Verse 37 describes God's judgment on Judah. He'll bring together all of her so-called lovers at one time and show them her treachery. How she had played one nation's gods against the other and they will all join in stoning her for her wickedness. In verses 44 through 59, Judah is called the daughter of the Amorites and the Hittites, notorious idolaters. We also see that she has two sisters, Samaria and Sodom. You remember Samaria was known for its idolatry. Sodom for its immorality. But Judah was more unfaithful, we're told, than Samaria and more unrighteous than Sodom. Notice in verse 51, God says, Samaria did not commit half of your sins. And here's the point. If Jerusalem's two sisters were judged by God, how much more will Jerusalem herself be judged? In chapter 17, Ezekiel tells a parable that addresses the political situation of his day. The first 10 verses tell the story. The last 11 verses provide the interpretation. You see a great eagle with large wings and long pinions full of feathers of various colors. That great eagle is Babylon. Daniel 7 verse 4, Jeremiah 48 verse 40 depict Babylon as an eagle. In 597 B.C., the Babylonians clipped off the topmost twigs of the tree. Jeconiah and his royal family were taken captive and they were brought to the land of trade or to the city of Babylon. The remainder of the Jews were like seed planted in a fertile field. The seed grew into a vine, which we've already noted was symbolic for Judah. Initially, the vine turned toward Babylon, but in the end, it turned toward another eagle, the Egyptians. And that's when the question is asked, will he not pull up his roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? And the answer is yes. You see, King Zedekiah and the seed left in the land should have accepted God's judgment by surrendering to Babylon. Instead, they made an alliance with the Egyptians. The problem, though, is that Pharaoh and his army never came to their aid. And because of Zedekiah's rebellion, great was the fall of Judah. Real repentance would have seen the handwriting on the wall, would have recognized that it was God's will for them to surrender to the Babylonians, and it would have cooperated with God's judgment. Instead, he bucked that, and as a result, his vine will wither. The chapter ends with a messianic prophecy that foreshadows Judah's return to the land. We're told that one of the trees, the highest branches, will be planted on a mountain, on a high and prominent mountain, a mountain in Israel. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, we know that the branch is an idiom for the Messiah. Jesus was a branch off of David's family tree. And Jesus is the branch, we're told here, who bears fruit. And all the birds dwell under his branches. Jesus was planted on a mountain, a mountain called Calvary. And his death has brought forth tremendous spiritual fruit. And one day, all the birds or the nations of the earth will all bow before Jesus. I love verse 24. There we're told, And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. You see, Jesus is the low tree. He came in a lowly fashion as a servant, and yet God has exalted him highly. He is the dry tree who literally dried up and was buried. But three days later, he was brought back to life. And today he is the green tree who sprouts and gives life and is alive and lives in our hearts. The Jews had a proverb that they were using as an excuse. 
In chapter 18, verse 2, we're told what they were saying. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, you've probably never heard that proverb, but trust me, you're familiar with its underlying philosophy. It's surprisingly relevant to modern society. The idea being that the children aren't really responsible for their own actions. That they are the result of their parents' treatment. That the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and so as a result, the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's the old blame game. Blame your problems on mom and dad. It reminds me of the beleaguered parent who confessed, I was born in the wrong era. We were kids when everything was the kids' fault. Now we're parents when everything is the parents' fault. We do live in an age of victimization. Everybody is a victim. Nobody's responsible for their own personal choices and decisions. My teeth are on edge because my parents sucked sour grapes. Even good and godly parents are getting a bum rap these days. But let me tell you, there's an old saying, and I believe it. Every tub sits on its own bottom. Don't forget it. Parents do have a profound influence over their children's lives. But bad parents aren't an excuse for bad choices once you know better. I tell my kids, they can't blame it on me. If they don't turn out better than me, I'll be greatly disappointed. Hey, don't don't set your sights on me. Don't say just because you did it. Hey, hey, I've got higher aspirations for them than just to turn out like me. I hope they turn out a lot better than me. I'm no excuse for them. Ezekiel chapter 18 tells the story of three generations. A godly man has a wicked son who in turn sires a grandson who turns out to be godly. Go figure. A godly grandson, a godly grandfather, a wicked son, and now a godly grandson. But the point of the parable is simple. Every man is judged for his own attitudes and his own actions. Every person is responsibility for their own lives. You can't blame it on your parents. Verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. There's a lesson for today's society. Chapter 19 is a lamentation, a funeral dirge. Ezekiel mourns the death of the Davidic dynasty. For the first time in 400 years, Israel is about to be without a king. The lioness in the chapter is the lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah. David and his royal heirs were from Judah. The first lion is trapped and taken captive to Egypt. This was King Jehoahaz. In his place, another lion roars, his son Jeconiah, who ranges three months. In verse 9, we're told that Jeconiah was captured too and taken to Babylon. A man named Zedekiah did rule for a few years after Jeconiah, but he was an uncle, not the rightful heir. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not, this is, I'm not lying. For the first time in four centuries, Judah is without a lion on the throne to roar and rule. This is all why Jesus is called in Revelation chapter 5, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. For he is the resumption of Judah's dominance. The lion was cut off, but one day a lion again will roar. One day a tribesman from Judah, a branch from David's family tree, will again reign over Israel in his name 
is Jesus. Chapter 20 retraces Israel's history. And at every turn we find they were guilty of idolatry. Over and over again, God could have judged them but didn't. God was patient for nearly 850 years, but now judgment is on the horizon. The hammer is about to fall, and the chapter closes with a promise. Their time in Babylon will break their idolatry once and for all. They will return to the land, and when they do, they will worship the one true God. Chapter 21 is the song of the sword, the sword of God's judgment. And in verse 6, Ezekiel is told to sigh. In other words, to moan, to groan. And his sigh is a sign. You know, a sigh is a powerful sign. If your boss begins your annual review at work with a sigh, oh, You know you're in trouble. It's a sign. If your spouse starts out a conversation with a sigh, Honey, (laughs) it's a sign. If your pastor tells a joke and the congregation responds with a sigh, it's a sign. And you know, it takes a hard, stubborn person to ignore a sign and continue on telling bad jokes in their stubbornness. Ezekiel's sigh is symbolic of Judah's reaction to God's judgment. They too are stubborn. The whole nation sighs. Verse 7, every spirit will faint. All knees will be weak as water. Jerusalem is in for a big sigh. Verse 21 predicts the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, will come to a fork in the road. He'll have to make a choice to head east to attack the Ammonite city of Rabbah or to head west to besiege Jerusalem. And at this fork in the road, he consults his divinations, his occult practices. First, he throws down his arrows and he looks at which way the tips point. That's his first means of guidance. He then looks at his images, which were, we're told from history, mummified heads of decapitated children. And they sort of rolled them out and they thought that the demons would show them which ways to go. Then he analyzes a liver. And since the liver was full and saturated with blood, the pagans believed it was the source of life. And so a sheep was sacrificed, then its liver was thrown out and consulted for guidance. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? You can just trust the Lord and pray and ask the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go yanking some liver out of some sheep. But here's Ezekiel's point. Though Nebuchadnezzar consulted these demonic devices, in reality, it was God, the sovereignty of God, that led him to Jerusalem. The Babylonians were God's sort of judgment against his rebellious people. And an incredible prophecy appears in verses 26 and 27. Here we're told that the kingdom of Judah will be overthrown by the Babylonians and lose its crown. We're told it shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Never again will the king sit on the throne of Israel until he comes whose right it is. You see, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they appointed a governor, not a king. The Persians later made Judah a province. The Maccabeans ruled over the land through priests. Puppet governors, rulers, governed during the Roman era. Modern Israel today has a parliamentary form of government, a president and a prime minister. But always there has been no king to rule over the land. That's because Ezekiel said a king will no longer rule until he comes whose right it is. And to be king of Israel, you have to be able to prove your right to the throne. And that, remember, requires a proper pedigree. 
You have to be a descendant of the tribe of Judah, and you have to be of the line of David. And when the Romans burned the temple in 70 AD, they destroyed the genealogies of the Jews, thus eliminating even the possibility of anyone coming around today establishing the proper birthright. Understand, there is only one Jew alive today who can present and prove his right to the throne. And that is the carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus Christ. And you see, this is why the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are so strategic. They're more than just a bunch of boring begots. They prove whose right it is. They show that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and from the family of David. And therefore, when Jesus comes again, God will crown him king. In chapter 22, Jerusalem is called the bloody city. In addition to her idolatry, she shed innocent blood. And she finally comes here to the end of her rope. Toward the end of the chapter, Ezekiel mentions the sins of individual groups. The priests have failed to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. The princes abuse and destroy people to pad their pockets with dishonest gain. The prophets spew false visions and demonic lies in the name of the Lord. And the people are no better than their leaders. They've robbed each other and mistreated the poor. Everyone in the bloody city is guilty of terrible atrocities. Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30 is an often quoted verse. The Lord says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Jeremiah was in prison. Ezekiel and Daniel were off in Babylon. So God searched for a man to take a stand. You see, this gap between God and his people was enormous. The people needed an intercessor. God needed a representative. He wanted a person who would stand for him and kneel before the people. And he searched for such a person, but he found no no one. You know, I believe God still searches for a person to stand in the gap. I believe the gap today is wider than ever. People need someone who will intercede before God for them. God needs someone who will represent Him before the people. Do we love God enough to stand up? Do we love people enough to bow down and pray? Are we willing to get in the gap and do what we can to bring together God and people? Chapter 23 is the sad story of two sisters turned sluts. Their names, Ahola and Aholabah. Ahola means her tent. And the city of Samaria had its own temple. Aholabah means my tent in her. And it was the city of Jerusalem that contained the temple of God. You remember after the reign of Solomon, the Hebrew kingdom split in two, north and south. The northern kingdom was called Israel. Its capital was Samaria or Ahola, while the southern kingdom was called Judah. Its capital was Jerusalem or Aholabah. Samaria was first to to delve into idolatry, and therefore she was the first to fall to judgment. The Assyrians conquered the city of Samaria in 722 B.C. And verse 11 makes an astonishing point. Now, although her sister Aholabah saw this, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her harlotry more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. Understand this. Jerusalem and Samaria, Jerusalem had Samaria as the example. He could see. Her fall into sin. And what happened to her as a consequence? Jerusalem had the example. But Jerusalem refused to take heed to God's warning. And rather than learning from her sister's mistakes, she became worse than her sister. The fall of Samaria, you might say, was a shot off the bow. But Jerusalem continued to sail straight for destruction. It's tragic. 
It's been said, the only thing man learns from history is that man learns nothing from history. And this was certainly the case with the nation Judah. Now, in baseball, when a batter deliberately allows a pitch to hit him so that he can reach first base, we say that he's taken one for the team. And that's what Ezekiel does in chapter 24. He takes one for the team. In fact, he takes a major hit, a tremendous personal blow to communicate a message for God. Remember, Ezekiel lived before the age of satellites and telecommunications. Messages traveled by courier. And news from Judah might take several weeks to arrive in Babylon. But in chapter 24, verse 1, the Lord tells Ezekiel exactly what's going on back home in Jerusalem. The day was January the 15th, 588 B.C. And that was the day that Babylon first laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. That's when the day, the day that the Babylonian army started the assault. And to commemorate this ominous event, Ezekiel again is, performed, is told to perform a stunt. He's to take some water and boil it. Then load into it lots of cuts of meat. Then cook up a stew. And of course, the oils and fats would rise to the surface And this formed a picture of what God thought of Jerusalem. For the people of the city had become the scum of the earth. And now the scum is in serious hot water. But that's not all that happens to commemorate the beginning of this siege. And here is where Ezekiel takes one for the team. In verse 18, he tells us, On that very evening... His own wife died. You see, as God was watching his wife die in Jerusalem, he illustrates it. He demonstrates his grief to the exiles in Babylon by allowing Ezekiel's wife to die. And Ezekiel takes one for the team. And worse, God orders Ezekiel not to cry or mourn over the death of his wife. Why? Because his job is to represent God's feelings, not his own. I think this is an important aspect of ministry. Often we're tempted in ministry to tell people what we think to show them how we feel, but that's not our job. That's never our job. We're to speak God's words, not our own. We're to represent His attitudes, not our frustrations. It's so easy to let our personality and our personal preferences and feelings muddy the waters of ministry. Our emotions can color the message that God wants to deliver. We have to get our emotions out of the way, our feelings out of the way, and and give exactly what God has given us. Ezekiel is to show no emotion, for Jerusalem is getting what she deserves. It's interesting, though, too, while a stone-faced Ezekiel ministers in Babylon, there was a teary-eyed Jeremiah weeping back in Jerusalem. And if you combine both men's ministries, you get the true picture of God's emotions over this whole scene. Yes, justice was being served in Ezekiel, and that stone face communicated God's justice, but God is also grieving over the destruction of his people, and that teary-eyed Jeremiah represented God's grief. Put them both together, and again you discover that God is both just and merciful. Verses 25 through 27 tells us that the day the siege began until the day word arrived that the city of Jerusalem had finally fallen, Ezekiel remained mute. In other words, he did not say a word for 23 months. Most of the time we figure when God's called us into the ministry, it's, he wants us to speak. 
But here, (laughs) Ezekiel's ministry for 23 months is to shut up, to stay silent. Five months after the fall of Jerusalem, the news finally arrives in Babylon, and Ezekiel again opens his mouth. But until the judgments are complete, God has said all he intends to say on the subject in Ezekiel is to remain silent. (laughs) We have a hard time staying silent for 23 minutes, let alone... 23 months. You know, we're so quick to give advice, but understand sometimes the Lord just might want you to stay silent. Chapters 25 through 32 are judgments against Judah's neighbors. Ezekiel predicts God's judgment on seven nations. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. And you'll notice all of these judgments are based on their treatment of the Jews. You see, this confirms what God told the father of the Jews, Abraham, back in Genesis 12, verse 3. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And you can look down through the history of wrecked nations. And you'll find that those who have been wrecked and damaged are those who oppose the Jews. You'll also discover that those nations that prospered were those who came to the aid of God's chosen people. I believe it is America's support of the nation Israel is the one reason that God continues to bless our own country. Genesis 12 verse 3 is the basis on which all of these nations are now judged. Chapter 25 records God's verdict on four of these seven nations. God judged Ammon and Moab because they delighted in the destruction of Jerusalem. There's an old maxim, don't kick a man when he's down. And both Ammon and Moab kicked Judah when she was down. As a result, the Babylonians will see to it that they too get kicked. Edom will be judged at the hands of Israel. This occurs later in 126 B.C. in the intertestament period. A Jewish priest by the name of John Hycranus will subdue Edom. And you can read about that battle in the history of the Jews by the historian Josephus or in the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees. Verse 15 says that Israel's ancient enemy, the Philistines, will be destroyed because of the old hatred. That old hatred that the Philistines had for the Jews, it goes all the way back to the days of Samson. It's all playing out according to Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Chapters 26 through 28 are amazing prophecies against the Phoenician city of Tyre. You see, Tyre was a nautical nation, the ancient mariners. They sailed the seas and through trade became a rich nation. But with their riches came pride. You remember Proverbs chapter 6 tells us that there are six things that the Lord hates. And you remember what's number one on the list. A proud look. D.L. Moody once said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. And it was because of pride that God grew tired of Tyre. It reminds me of Speedy Morris. Speedy Morris is the basketball coach for LaSalle University. And he was shaving one morning when his wife ran into the restroom and told him that a phone call, he had a phone call from Sports Illustrated. Of course, Speedy was elated. This is every coach's dream. He was thrilled about the prospects of some national recognition for his program. And Speedy thought for sure that he was about to become famous. He was going to get written up in Sports Illustrated. He was so excited he nicked himself shaving. He raced down the stairs. He picked up the receiver to hear the voice on the other end of the line say, for just 75 cents an issue, you can get a one-year trial subscription. Guys, Beware of pride. In verses 3 through 5, the Lord says, 
Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. This prophecy has one of the most amazing fulfillments in all the scripture. In the year that Jerusalem was conquered, Nebuchadnezzar also laid siege to the city of Tyre. The siege lasted an unbelievable 13 years from 586 to 573 B.C. You see, Tyre's ability to bring in food and supplies by sea prolonged the siege. When the Babylonians finally breached the walls, it was a hollow victory. For what had happened is the inhabitants of Tyre had loaded up on their ships and they had moved out to an island one mile offshore. Nebuchadnezzar conquered an abandoned city and Tyre was left alone for the next 241 years. That is, until 332 B.C. When a 19-year-old Greek general known as Alexander the Great launched an attack against the island city of Tyre. Over a period of seven months, Alexander took the ruins of the city that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed and he used the rubble to build a causeway that extended from the shore to the island. It was 200 feet wide and it was just what his army needed to cross over from the mainland to the island. Of course, in taking the rubble and building the causeway, the site of the old city was scraped clean like the top of a rock, just like Ezekiel had predicted. Alexander marched his army across the causeway and took the city of Tyre. And the most amazing aspect of Ezekiel's prophecy is in verse 14 when he predicts that Tyre will never be rebuilt. Understand the ancient site today sits on top of a freshwater spring that pumps 10 million gallons of water daily into the ocean. That's enough water to supply a modern city and yet the site remains barren and uninhabited. As Ezekiel predicted 2,500 years ago, the ancient city of Tyre remains to this day nothing but a rock where a few fishermen spread their nets and dry their nets. There's a book called Science Speaks by a man named Peter Stoner. And in the book, he calculates several of the biblical prophecies to determine the odds of them happening by chance. And he calculates the odds on this prophecy concerning the city of Tyre. Remember now, the odds of you dying in a fire are 1 in 40,000. The odds of you being hit by baseball at a Major League Baseball game are 1 in 300,000. The odds of you getting struck by lightning are 1 in 2 million, and the odds of you winning the lotto, 1 in 4 million. But the odds of this prophecy coming true, according to Stoner, coming true by accident, is 1 in 75 million. Chapter 26 is conclusive proof that the book you hold in your hand was written by God who dwells outside of time and has known the end even from the beginning. Chapter 27 is a lamentation for Tyre. The poem depicts the city as a great ship built by wealth from all over the world. But the east wind blows and it breaks up in the waters. You might call the city of Tyre the Titanic of the Bible. A great ship sinks. Chapter 28 spotlights the king of Tyre and the pride that brought him down. God says in verse 2, Because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God's. In the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God. Notice his boast in verse 3. He claims to be wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from him. Verse 5 adds, your heart is lifted up because of your riches. To put it succinctly, the king of Tyre has gotten the big head. 
Now, this ancient king's name was Ithbal II. But actually, he spewed a modern philosophy. He made himself out to be God. You see, this is the New Age dogma. Just tap into the God within. Each of us is our own God. It's just as the devil tempted Eve. You can be like God. The other night I was watching a commercial on television. They were advertising some new health food cereal. When the announcer began, if your body is your temple. And at first it sounded biblical, but then it hit me. He wasn't referring to the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said, if your body is your temple, as if you are your own God inhabiting your temple. This is rank blasphemy. And this was the sin of the king of Tyre. Verse 9 shows how God judges such thinking. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a God? But you shall be a man and not a God in the hand of him who slays you. A lie is exposed when we are confronted with our own mortality. For the king of Tyre, that moment will come at the hand of an executioner. For someone today, it might come through a battle with cancer. Think you're a God all you want, but every one of us will one day die like the mortal men that we truly are. In verse 11, Ezekiel's prophecy peers beyond the king of Tyre to the source of his inspiration, to the patriarch of pride. And you know who that is. That's Satan. Verse 12 and 13 say, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, when was Ithbal II in the garden of Eden? If my memory serves me correct, it wasn't Adam and Eve and Ithbal. The only person other than God to join the first couple in the Garden of Eden was the serpent called Satan. And he becomes the subject of the following verses. Ezekiel looks beyond Ithbal to the source of his inspiration to the devil himself. It's as if no denouncement of pride is complete without a condemnation of its originator. Satan was once Lucifer. Ezekiel calls him the anointed cherub, according to verse 14. He was stationed above the throne of God until pride entered his heart. He wanted to be his own God, and ever since he has tried to perpetuate that same sin. It's interesting, the name Lucifer means light bearer or day star. Here he's called the seal of perfection. At one time, this angel was perfection's measuring stick. We're told he was full of wisdom and beauty. Understand, Satan isn't some ugly little man in a red suit with a hooked nose and horns and pitchfork. He's a creature of exquisite beauty and enormous intellect. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 that the devil has the ability to appear as an angel of light. He comes in appealing packages. The devil is the gorgeous blonde in the string bikini. He's full of beauty. He's the hip professor with the airtight atheistic arguments. He's full of wisdom. As Shakespeare put it, the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Never forget that. Notice too in verse 13, Satan is a musical creature. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Apparently, Lucifer was created with this incredible ability to make music. Some Bible scholars believe that before his fall, Satan was heaven's worship leader. He was the leader of the band. Perhaps this is how pride entered his heart. He got tired of giving praise and one day decided to grab the praise, steal it for himself. 
This could also explain why Satan has been so successful over the years in using pop music to steal away the hearts of young people. He's quite a musician himself. In verse 16, Ezekiel describes Lucifer's fall from heaven. You became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. God abhorred his pride and booted him out of heaven. Guys, there are two mistakes that as a Christian we can make in contending with the devil. First, we can underestimate him. Hey, he's smart. He comes in appealing packages He knows which buttons to push. Never underestimate him. But the second mistake we can make is overestimating him. For no matter how smart he is or how deceptive he can be, the devil is still a created being and he is subject to God's authority. And this is why the Bible says that if we resist the devil in Jesus' name, he will be forced to flee. Never forget 1 John 4 verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our victory over the devil is certain if we'll just stand up to him in Jesus' name. The remainder of chapter 28 is a judgment against Tyre's sister city Sidon and a blessing on Israel. God will one day regather the Jews back to the land. Chapters 29 through 32 are an anthology of prophecies. Seven different prophecies uttered by Ezekiel over 17 years. And all seven prophecies come with a date, except the one in chapter 30, verses 1 through 19. These four chapters, you might say, are Ezekiel's greatest hits against Egypt. Remember, it had been 900 years since Moses had brought God's judgment on the Egyptians. The memory of the Exodus had been buried now under the sands of time, Once again, the Pharaoh has become haughty and arrogant and has exalted himself above God. And it's time again for Egypt to be taken down a notch or two. In chapter 29, the Pharaoh is compared to a sea serpent, perhaps a crocodile, in the river Nile. But he's taken out of the water and he's left on the dry ground to die. One reason God judged Egypt was because of the covenant that she had made with King Zedekiah. Verse 7 says that when Israel leaned on Egypt, the Egyptians let them down. Zedekiah had trusted the Egyptians to fight for them against the Babylonians, but when their help was needed, Egypt refused to answer the bell. In fact, the Babylonians turned on Egypt and eventually conquered the land of the Nile. Whereas Judah was taken into exile for 70 years, Verse 11 tells us that the Egyptians were captive in Babylon for 40 years. And for four decades, Egypt was a ghost town. In verse 14, God promises to bring back the Egyptians from Babylon. But they shall be a lowly kingdom, he says. For 2,100 years, Egypt was a world superpower. But no more. After the Babylonian conquest... In 568 B.C., and after their return 40 years later, Egypt has remained a lowly kingdom. Egypt has forever been a has-been on the list of nations. And for the last 2,500 years now, Egypt has remained a second-rate kingdom, just as Ezekiel prophesied. Chapter 30 is a poem describing the destruction of Egypt and the Pharaoh. Before you read the chapter in chapter 31, you need to yell timber. For Assyria and Egypt are compared to great trees, but both nations are cut down by the Babylonians. Chapter 32 follows the fall of Egypt all the way to the pit of hell. And Ezekiel even notes the other nations who have joined the Egyptians in the tortures of Hades. You remember Dante's classic book, The Inferno. In that book, the author takes you on a tour of hell and its inhabitants. And that's kind of what Ezekiel does here in chapter 32. 
When the prophet reaches hell, he looks around and he sees its inhabitants, the Assyrians and Elamites and Meshach and Tubal and Edom. The Babylonian army, he says, has done its share in populating hell. In chapter 32, verse 31, there we see the Pharaoh depicted in hell. And the verse reveals two truths about the afterlife. First, the Pharaoh recognizes the people with him. He's comforted by the fact that there are people in hell he recognizes. I guess misery does love company. But apparently in heaven and in hell, we'll maintain the identities we had on earth. We'll know each other. Second, he's aware. He's in hell, but he's conscious and he's capable of feeling. That's important. For there is no such thing as annihilationism where the soul ceases to exist. No. Hell is real and tangible. And when the Bible speaks of eternal punishment, that's exactly what it means, a conscious, torturous punishment. Ezekiel has now been silent for 23 months. Ever since the siege began, God has told him to be quiet. But when he opens his mouth again, it marks a turning point in his ministry. For prior to this time, he has been prophesying the judgment on Jerusalem. But now after this, he'll begin to focus on the glorious future of Israel. And he'll begin to discuss the regathering and the restoration and the times of future glory. And in the latter chapters now of Ezekiel, we will find some of the most incredible prophecies in all the scriptures. Prophecies that have been fulfilled in our own lifetime, in our own generation. Prophecies that were fulfilled 2,500 years after Ezekiel uttered them. Prophecies, some of which are still yet to be fulfilled. And so we've got some amazing discoveries to make next week as we tackle the rest of the book of Ezekiel. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it tonight. We pray it's blessed your people in Jesus' name.